This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Even though artificial intelligence can conceptually trace its roots back to the 1950s, the reality is AI and machine learning went mainstream not too long ago, and as recently as November of 2022, anyone with a computer and internet access could dip their toes in the AI waters for not much more than the time needed to understand how to make it work. Unless you've had your head in the sand, you probably know this is a big deal. But what does this mean to the profession of architecture? Are we all going to be replaced? Are there any ethical considerations that we should be thinking about? Welcome to episode 122, Architecture and AI. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to start the process of discussing artificial intelligence and how it is intersecting with the practice of architecture, as well as the education process of architecture students. That is an Everest-sized task, but we have to start somewhere. Andrew and I have both been exploring platforms like ChatGPT and as well as image generators like Midjourney, Dolly, and others. But there's so much information out there that we feel like we wanted to bring a guest in for today's show that can help facilitate our conversation a bit. Corey Beeg is an Associate Professor of Architecture at the University of Texas in Austin. He received his Master of Architecture from Columbia University, his Bachelor of Arts in Architecture from Washington University in St. Louis, and is NCARB certified and a registered architect in the state of Texas. In 2005, Corey founded OTA Plus, an architecture, design, and research office that specializes in the development and use of current, new, and emerging digital technologies for the design and fabrication of buildings, building components, and experimental installations. OTA uses current design software and CNC machine tools to both generate and construct conceptually rigorous and formally unique design proposals. Since 2013, Corey has served as chair of the Texas Society of Architects Emerging Design and Technology Conference and is co-director of TexFab Digital Fabrication Alliance. He has served on the board of South by Southwest EcoPlace by Design and the Association for Computer-Aided Design and Architecture, otherwise known as Acadia. Hey, Corey, thanks for joining the show. We appreciate you carving out a bit of your evening with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, Andrew and I both, we did some research. We've been talking offline about AI and what it means. And, you know, I can go to my Discord channel and Midjourney and see that I've been a member since January 12th, you know, which <laughs> is not that long ago. <laughs> and as we were talking about how this works and like, how are we using it? Andrew is a professor in school, knows way more about this than I do. But it's one of those moments where I don't feel like I'm on the bleeding edge of this anymore, even though it's really really become accessible to just anybody pretty recently. You know, since I'm on the advisory council for UT School of Architecture, I was in the room when you came and gave your presentation to all of us stuffed shirts not too long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been making the rounds here at UT. I also spoke recently in Berlage and Netherlands, and it's been pretty wild ride. I mean, a lot has changed in the last six months, really. Like you say, it's very fast the way things are changing. Yeah, it's, it's literally the Wild West where this stuff is concerned. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really crazy. Like you said, in the six months, how much it's just exploded. The accessibility of it, I think, has gone way up. I mean, I know you probably have been interested in this stuff for a while. There's a, there's a colleague of mine, A&M, that's really into it as well. Just recently, the top has blown off and it's gone kind of wild. Yeah, that's wild. I, I think the first image I saw was by Matias Del Campo. He's at Michigan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just took like a, a picture of a house made of feathers. It just totally blew me away. I think at that moment I saw that this is going to be a game changer. I went to school at Columbia in early 2000s, late 99s. That's when the digital first digital revolution happened, where computers were brought into paperless studios. We pretty much abandoned analog methods to see what that experiment would lead to under Bernard Schumi as the dean at Columbia. That, to me, that was a big sea change in architecture. I'm the way we were working, the way we were thinking with these tools, the way we were introducing tools that were developed in other disciplines. It was all completely new and really changed the way we design and, and think about architecture. I haven't felt that since now. 
I think this text to image is maybe even more profound. And these AI models that are coming online, like new ones every day, literally, are changing architecture in the same way, maybe even more so, to be honest. Were you using a lot of Form Z? Oh, yeah. Back then? I was a Form Z master. <laughs> a Form Z guy? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. My time at Columbia, I started with Form Z. That was the first thing I learned. Yeah. And then those computer programs were changing so rapidly and everyone had their own software they were interested in. So I, I then took Maya after that. And I was like, I'm done with Form mm. Z. I'm now a Maya person. <laughs> and my next instructor was Joey Kaczynski, who directed recently Maverick. You know, he's a, now a famous film director, mm. but he was teaching computer software. He was an architect. He went to Columbia, graduated, and then started teaching the tools. And he taught us 3ds Max. So when I learned that, I was like, oh, yeah. that's cool. I'm done with Maya. I'm a 3D Max person. And so now I just like have been adopting these. I don't even know what I am now. I guess I'm a a mid-journey person now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, before we go any deeper down the rabbit hole, I have in my show notes, I go, we should start with artificial intelligence 101 because we're throwing on a lot of words that maybe a lot of people don't understand what it is that we're referencing. So I thought we'd just take a couple of minutes at the top of the show to explain what it is we're talking about, what people should know, what they should be looking for. So imagine you're at a dinner party and there's not people as dynamic and interesting as Andrew and I are, and you're having to explain to them artificial intelligence, mid-journey, chat, like what do people need to know as a primer so that when they have these conversations or when we get into the impacts and ramifications to our profession, they're going to have a little bit of a working knowledge on what we're talking about. All right. So let me try to do a brief history of AI. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I've, this is an impossible question. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> it's kind of important to step a little further back before the text-to-image, before the recent stuff we've been seeing. So generally, artificial intelligence is really the capability of a computer to think like a human being, or at least fool us into thinking that it's thinking like a human being. So the Turing test is a famous, uh, Alan Turing came up with this test. If you can't tell you're interacting with a computer, it's past this Turing test. That was really the gauge for, is it artificial intelligence? Is it not? I think we've really gone past that. I think then maybe there was a confusion that they were, or at least they were trying to make computers behave like humans. They're trying to think about how the brain works with different neurons connecting. Computers do not work that way. They're great at solving problems. They're great at filtering through tons of data. And so they're no longer, I don't think there's the push anymore to recreate the human mind. I think now it's gone in a different direction and it's really to solve problems that maybe humans aren't capable of solving because they're so vast and so large or, or so complicated. So a lot of people came up with different methods of machine learning, which is the idea that machines learn through experience, which are really based on data sets. A machine learning model would scrape the web for whatever data it needed. If it was a self-driving car, it would have data sets to include everything a car might encounter. And they would be able to compile all that and then recognize features of that data set. So it's trained on a very specific task, recognizing things that you would see as you drive a car. So all of these are kind of based on one version or another of that. There's generative adversarial networks, convolutional neural networks, all sorts of different models. The latest one that we're working with is the fusion-based AI, which is the sort of text-to-image stuff that you're seeing all over Instagram and Facebook. And that one is a little unique in that it, it scrapes the web for a lot of data, images of pretty much everything you can think of, and it assigns tags and features to those things. And then it creates a noise cloud. So it generates a noise cloud of random pixels. And then from that cloud, it starts assigning features to different areas of that map until it builds up an image. So it's not collaging, like it's not taking clips of different images and stitching them together. It knows that like a bird looks a certain way. And especially if you say, give me a blue jay, it knows what blue jays look like. And so wherever the pixels are within that random cloud, it'll start to assemble them into something that looks like a blue jay. So it'll be an entirely new image in the form of a blue jay. So that's where we are now. With things like mid-journey, when we say mid-journey, it's essentially a platform or an AI service that runs through something called a Discord channel, which is like maybe a kind of Facebook or some kind of a interactive platform where people can talk and communicate with each other. And then you type in what's called a prompt. So that's the text. And that prompt could be anything. It could be a description of a landscape or a building. You can even include like the colors that you want, the materiality that you want in the scene, even the type of lens that the if it's a photograph might be taken from. Any kind of qualitative thing or even quantitative thing that might describe an image or part of an image that you want to include, 
type it in, hit go, and then it gives you four versions of that thing that you've asked it to produce. You then choose, which means um, upscale one or all of those images, which then increases the resolution. And by increasing the resolution, it adds more detail to the features. So it might be kind of a loose outline of a blue jay, but then when you upscale it, it starts adding more definition, like contours of the feathers and maybe even pulls more from your text prompt that it may have excluded in the first pass. And you just keep doing that. And you do it as long as you want until you're happy with the results that are coming out. There's mid-journey AI, there's stable diffusion, which is the open source model. A lot of these models are using the same data set. So it's just different ways of accessing it and utilizing it. OpenAI, which is the one that produces DALI. They're also the ones, by the way, that released ChatGPT, which is the language model that I think people are probably even more familiar with, honestly, than the text image because it's changing everything. But that's it. Yeah. So you're super accessible. You don't need any expertise. You just type what you want to see, hit go, and then it produces the image. So one of the things I'd be interested in just as kind of a, we'll put it at the beginning of the blog post and everybody should go look at the blog post for this one because there's, there's going to be some imagery in it, you know, stuff that maybe that I've generated and Andrew's generated, but there's going to be stuff that Corey's done. And one of the things I think is really interesting, and I actually went to this experiment through today when I told you that I did this, do a small house out of dinosaur fossils, but I, I did it in the style of Zaha Hadid or, you know, these different architects to see like what kind of different product I would end up getting. One of the things that for the people that are interested in doing these text to image generators is I'd like to see an example of what you wrote and how, how much text goes into creating some of the very specific images that you can create. Cause you know, you said, be careful. It's pretty addictive. Like in a month you did almost 12,000 <laughs> images. And I know that I've been playing with it. So like now when I write blog posts, I go, well, instead of making a graphic, I'm going to go to mid journey and I'm going to type in some stuff and see what I can get that supports what I'm trying to accomplish. Next thing you know, it's been like three hours <laughs> and I've just been doing upscale and variation and change this. And what if I change that variable and all these kind of different features and just to kind of see what'll happen. What does this one ingredient do? So as an example, having a, here's the words that were used to generate this image. I would be very curious to see that because sometimes the best stuff comes from the least amount of words, to be honest with you. Yeah. I really feel strongly that the text really doesn't matter so much. I mean, honestly, what matters is how you curate the images that come out. In my experience, the further I go with something, the better it gets. And this is almost universally true. I could start with five words, really basic, you know, buildings, mixed use, after a rainstorm landscape, and, and that, that could be it. But if I go 500 images deep, my curation will guide it more than the text will at a certain point. So I can start choosing. I really like the way, you know, that area of the building started to introduce a red element. I'm going to go further there, vary that, upscale that. And there are other tools in there. Like it, it started really basic that you would upscale and vary images, but now they've added things like remixes. And now I'm talking specifically about mid-journey. Mm -hmm. But they added things like Remix, which is pretty interesting because you can go down a path, you know, maybe 30, 40 images in and then say, you know what, I do like this building, but now I want it to be a cluster of buildings. I want it to be like a housing project. And you can remix it with that new text and it will start to introduce that within the recipe that you've already introduced to the computer. So you can start to guide it along the way in a way that you couldn't before, which I think is pretty exciting. The other thing I like to use is in DALI or in OpenAI, there's an outpainting tool. And this is something we use with our students where we'll produce images in mid-journey or other platforms, and then we'll bring them into DALI. And you can erase portions of the image and then ask the AI to fill in those gaps that you make. Mm -hmm. And it's really wild. I mean, the bigger the gaps you produce, the more interesting that territory becomes. I mean, yeah. It always ends up in like an 80s world, which is strange to me, like always fluorescent colors and like bright colors, <laughs> always, which uh, there's something in there about it, but. It's got a really heavy 80s data set. That's why it's pulling from, <laughs> from a bunch of old 80s images or something. And that's why it keeps giving you that stuff. That's right. I was going to say, I think it is interesting that I find sometimes the least amount of input actually still gives you a really rich image return, whereas you could write a prompt that's 200 words and you end up with the same. <laughs> sort of thing. It's kind of weird how it works that way. One of the things I was thinking about when you were mentioning the way that it works is filling in the data cloud. Apparently it doesn't understand hands yeah. in that data cloud. I don't know if you've done much of that, but 
everything I ever do, they've got eight fingers and like <laughs> hands are really tough right now for mid journey. Yeah. It seems. Yeah. It's funny because there, there must be so many photos of them. Yeah. It's surprising. You know, Bob, back to your point about what the prompt is, what the text is. There's an interesting study I've done. Um, and I know a few others have done this as well. There's a, a website called Hugging Face that has a bunch of different models and ways. There's a, a data set that everyone is using and you can just access it and, and use it in different ways. So there's something called a clip interrogator, which will take an image and it can be an AI generated image, or it could just be a photograph you've taken of something in the real world. Mm -hmm. And you can reverse engineer the text from it. So you can input an image and then say, AI, what words would you use to create this image? And it will give you all the text. And it's super interesting because a text you would never come up with. Like I put an image in of an installation I designed, a public art project. And the text, you know, it kind of matched like crystalline structure, network firing, neurons firing, interconnections. And then it had things like the Texas Revolution, which, you know, where did that come from? Or Selena Gomez, the singer. Yeah, really strange. And so I took those words. I didn't edit them at all. I put them back into Mid Journey. And sure enough, the results were pretty good iterations of my project. So, so isn't that interesting? That's wild. Yeah, who knows? That's wow. really cool. Well, we've kind of already hit on some of these. I just want to make sure if we're just going to do a battery of platforms, like you mentioned, a Hugging Face, like what platform should people be paying attention to? Because if you just did a generic search, there's so many that are coming out now. But if you had to like put your money on a horse, what are the ones that you would say you should start with these three? Yeah. What would you tell somebody? I think there's sort of two directions. One is Stable Diffusion, Dolly. And those text-to-image AIs, they're really good. I mean, they produce very photographic results, but you get what you ask of it. So whatever you put in the text, the output is very closely resembles the text that you put in. So if you say, I want a building made out of the letter L, you're going to get an L with windows and doors. Mid-Journey, I really like Mid-Journey, even though you know it's a service, so you pay for it. But it's much more... I don't know if I want to use this term, we can maybe unpack it, but it's much more creative and that you can't necessarily predict the outcome of the words you put in. And so if I say a building in the shape of an L, it might be L-like, but it's not going to be a shape of an L. It's going to have a lot more dimension, you know, maybe picks up parts of the L and other parts drift off. So it's a lot looser. And I think as a creative person, I prefer that because it's introducing new things to me, things that I didn't predict and that I didn't imagine in my mind. And I'm the kind of architect that, you know, when I start a design process, I don't know where I'm headed with the process. I don't have a picture of a building in my mind and then think, how do I make this building? I just start a process. I start producing models, drawings, all sorts of things. Like all architects, it just comes together over time as pieces fit together and might, it might go on tangents. But that's what's exciting about it is the unpredictability. So if you're a creative type, I would stay mid-journey. If you're just interested in like, what's this going to look like? Maybe Dolly or, or Stable Diffusion. Or all three, or all because three. those things appeal to, to you to play around and mess with. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question about, because I haven't done anything with Stable Fusion. Mm -hmm. Is it text prompt only? or Because yeah, you know now Midjourney, you can actually point it to a URL of a photograph and it can use it as a base image. Mm -hmm. Is that possible in those other platforms as well? Yeah, it'll do image to image stuff. Okay. The nice thing about Stable Diffusion, it, it really is referring to the model. So... You could create your own in um, like Google Colab. You could create your own model using Stable Diffusion. Hmm. When you see online, sometimes there's videos of things changing over time where it might be morphing from like one set of text prompts to another. And so you get these kind of weird jaggedy videos that are coming out. That's using mm -hmm. some AI service that's using Stable Diffusion, like their data set to produce that result. Stable Diffusion, though, does have its own service. It's called Dream Studio. And that just kind of consolidates the model, gives you some access to different tools, like how many iterations do you want to do? Which of the data sets do you want to use? And that they do charge a little bit for just because it's a, a service. But if you want to just use Stable Diffusion, you're decent at coding and putting these things together. You can just do it for free, put it on your own machine and run it whenever you want. Mm, interesting. All right. Cool. Interesting. I would like, because we have Andrew and we have Corey and they're both educators and they're in that world of academia, I wanted to just 
as the person outside of that bubble to ask the very simple and straightforward question, and I do not expect a simple and straightforward answer, is what is the impact at the 30,000 foot view of these platforms on the education process of architecture students these days? Like what's going to happen? What do you think? That's the, what is it? The $10,000 question? What are the, what's the saying? Tim is $10 million. A I think billion right dollar right. question. I mean, yes. Yeah. 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 For sure. well, we want people to know that they heard it here first though. Yeah. That's why we're at, that's why we ask the hard right. questions, Corey. Well, you know, I can, I can tell you the ways it's impacting from what I've seen studio teaching and, and seminar teaching. So the text to image stuff is a great sketch tool. I've used it in my studio right now. We're doing a design build project. All the students did actually what I mentioned earlier with hugging face, they, I gave them precedence, which we always do in education, you know, look at this architect, diagram their building, analyze it. Instead of doing that through traditional means of, you know, breaking out the circulation or understanding how the massing was formed, they put their images into AI to understand how AI reads them. And that was the sort of analysis. They then use that text from their precedent to generate new imagery, new iterations of that design, just as a way of sketching out ideas and understanding what terms might be used to describe this and might that influence how I then think about my own project, my own work. So that was the initial exercise. They then took elements from the AI and, and looked for different, I don't know, like infrastructures or different diagrams within the images coming out and then built those in a more traditional method using Rhino, Grasshopper, other tools of our trade, and then generated their own ideas from them. It was pretty successful, although... The tricky thing, I mean, the, the images coming out of AI are so complex and so rich and detailed that it's actually really hard to create a, even an abstract representation of them that matches up with what you're seeing in the image. So I think that's the biggest challenge right now. The future is that this will be a 3D service before long. I think within the next year, it'll be text to 3D model AI. And we won't be even having that discussion about how do you translate this 2D image to a 3D model. That's on one hand, a little scary. On the other hand, super exciting because then we can start to connect these models with optimization models, daylighting studies, generative models, and start to understand immediately how these models that are being output from AI behave in a real context, in a real world. Right now, they're totally contextless. You can say, okay, give me my image in Manhattan. And it looks kind of like Manhattan but it's nowhere near as rich or, or accurate as the site where you might be designing a project. So once we start getting 3D models and we actually have the sites modeled, that'll totally change how we design. I think we'll be a much more communication-driven process where we are basically have an assistant that's AI and we're asking it questions and we're asking it to change different outputs based on the things that we're looking for in a, a project. And I think it'll be a conversational design process where we generate stuff through that conversation, I think that'll be a total game changer. That's the text to image stuff. Then we have chat GPT, which chat GPT is uh, yeah. not only transforming architecture, but everything. Everything in education for sure. Yeah. Those email strings have just been nonstop since November <laughs> about how do we deal with this? What are we going to do? All of that. I think in academia overall, I feel like chat GPT is way more impactful. I'll admit I've used it for some things to just play around with and be like, give me a bibliography for a course on this. Yeah. And it spits out 10 or 12 books. If I'm trying to do a lecture on something and give me this. Although I, I don't know if you've noticed or heard, I saw something, I guess last week, about it giving back a citation that wasn't actually oh, yeah. real. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I talked to one of my colleagues about that and he said, you know what that could possibly be? Is that that academic person actually faked that citation right. and they never actually did it? Yeah. It's catching people in an academic life. I mean, he said it could be that, but it also could be, you know, the other. I thought that was really interesting. So it may not be perfect, but it, since it's scouring the entire internet for this stuff, yeah. it could possibly be pulling back false information. Yeah. <laughs> I want to stay on that for a minute because I was doing some research on this recently. And there are some sites that actually list these AI chat GPT as a source like they list that platform as the source. And there's some sites that says no information that's generated through any kind of AI or chat GPT is allowed here because it's been determined to be factually ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And so they've been banned. And they gave a couple examples. And one of them was they asked it, 
what's the biggest country in Central America other than this? And it said, Guatemala. And it's like, well, that's not right. Like, that is not the right answer. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of gets back to on the text to image course, like, give me a picture, do a building in the shape of an L, which I did like five minutes ago just to see what happened. It's not an L at all. Like, it's not even close to it. Yeah. Are you in mid journey? Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, let's just, while we're doing this, because I thought maybe it'll be fun when we do the blog post to say, well, what actually did happen when we did what Corey said is like, put this in. And I did it. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> like, that is, I don't know what it is. It's very odd. Yeah. But there has to do with this. It's an interpretation of an L. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an interpretation. L-like. Conceptual L. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's my interpretation of what's the biggest country in Central America, <laughs> Guatemala. No, it's not. There's a lot of this that's going behind it in terms of like, is it right? Are we, I don't know the best way to put it, but Andrew and I have had conversations about in his world, and Corey, I'm, you've dealt with this too, that people now, like I can go to TikTok mm. and it tells you, hey, here's the nine best ways to use chat GPT to basically do all this work so you can sit on the couch and watch TV. Mm. Use these words speak like an expert. Like there's certain phrases that they're saying, these are the terms that are really important and make a difference. Come up with 50 money-making ideas, the whole thing. And they just have the computer do it. And then when they actually break it down, they're like, those are all terrible ideas and that's not going to work. And there's still a layer of oversight that people seem to be forgetting still needs to exist. Yeah. Yeah. What if students are doing this? Like they've actually come up with software now to determine if AI wrote the article. Yes. And you know, there's also now websites that will take chat GPT text and turn it into more conversational. So it doesn't look like it's written by AI. Yeah. So a student can write something on chat GPT, take it to this other website, filter it so that it looks like it's not from an AI and then turn it in. I mean, it, that stuff is just bizarre. But to me, the point you're making really is that when it's scouring the internet, the problem that we're running into is that the assumption is everything on the internet is correct. And it's pulling in just all the bad stuff as much as it is the good stuff yeah. for all that information, yeah. the false stuff and the true stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I've also used it. And I think um, in my experience using it, you get what you put in. So it's really great at copy editing. If you've already written something and you're like, you know, this, this paragraph's not quite working, give me some alternatives and it will do it. It's really great for if you have done some research and you've got a quote by Susan Sontag and you're like, what are some other people I should look at that might be related to this quote in relation to my text? And it'll give you some really good references. And then as long as you do the work to go look through those and actually verify them, it can be a super wonderful, powerful tool. I mean, it really can be wonderful. But the problem, which you mentioned, there's two problems with AI. I mean, there's a lot of problems, but I think two major ones. <laughs> First is the truth. You know, it is built on untruths. Like, <clears throat> like you mentioned, I mean, there yeah. are factually incorrect things that it's brought in. And we're understanding those as truth, which is obviously very dangerous. The second is the data sets themselves. They're basically tagged according to certain words. And, and then those words are then tagged by the machine once it learns that a window is a window, a door is a door, and that's how it tags them. So it's very culturally like one-sided. The way I understand a window might not be the same way someone else understands a window in a different part of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic because when they start using the text-to-image AIs, they might be using a totally different language structure that might not relate at all to the data set because they're, the way it's tagged just doesn't match. Yeah. Like, you know. There's a lot of articles out there that talk about the cultural bias yeah. of this AI. Yeah. It's also like, you know, like we learned as architects, the first lesson I learned was don't call them windows and doors, building openings. Don't call them windows and doors. Call them apertures. Because as soon as you call them apertures, they're design territory. You know, you can change the shape of them. It could be a door window. It's just a lot more potential within that particular opening than if it's a window or it's a door. And so, you know, when they tagged it, they didn't tag it as apertures. They tagged it as windows and doors. And so as an architect trying to creatively intervene with this software or converse with it, there are terms within our discipline that I wish I could use that are not possible because they're not part of that data set. Yeah. So I think that's a huge problem. The solution would be to take some control over some of those imagery, some of the feature namings and taggings, and be able to introduce our own vocabulary as our discipline. Every other discipline has a similar issue as well, of course, but I think those two are, are, are problematic. You know, the thing I find a little amusing about that, though, is that 
we learn our vocabulary when we're in school, like aperture. Yeah. And then you get out and you realize, hey, lingo and jargon. Nobody understands that. Don't be a jerk. Don't use words that call a door. Everyone knows what a door is. So then you say, all right, I'm going to use language that's more mainstream. that Everybody understands rather than thinking that, well, you need to have a degree in architecture to understand me as your service provider, what I'm trying to accommodate. Yeah. We have a door, door schedule and a window schedule for a reason. <laughs> yes. there's It's exactly. very straightforward. And now we're like, okay, well, how do we use the language to kind of get closer to what we're looking for? But we still have to keep away from the, now we're like, well, now you really need to use generic terms and phrases and terminology so that the system knows what you're talking about. But let's say as a designer, there's a very particular kind of opening that you really want to be embedded within this project. That's where I think it could be exciting. If I knew that I tagged a certain kind of window with a certain kind of tag, it could be AB7924 dash. That could be, you know, what I tagged it. <laughs> yeah. But I know if I know that's this particular kind of window or feature and I want it to be part of this, I want the the AI to access that, then it could be exciting because then you're designing again with components and I think you gain a little more control over the process. I don't think it quite works that way just yet. Hmm. And the reason I said is I've been doing this little series with, I've been making these caricatures of famous architects as Pixar characters. <laughs> I'm going to be posting it soon, but like I'll put in their names and I won't, it won't look like that architect, even though we know that person is that person. It's pulling some other random named person that's giving me this sort of feedback image, which I think is funny. But I think you make an interesting point of, I wonder if I could go in now and go color faucet 94587 <laughs> on a sink in a bathroom. And if it would actually... Because it's identified like that model, if it would actually work or not. That would be a curious. Yeah. In, I haven't tried anything like that, but that would be interesting to do. Yeah. In the shape of the letter L. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. In the style of Zaha Hadid. Bruce Goff. We gotta yeah, go Bruce, Bruce Goff. Goff. <laughs> Bruce Bruce Goff. <laughs> I mean, it would be, you know, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, fame, I don't know, we could call it fame, whatever, popularity in AI does not depend on the quality of your projects. And it maybe depends on the uniqueness of your name. Mm-hmm. So True. Norman Foster <laughs> is not going to be as, as well known as Zaha Hadid because lots of Normans, lots of Fosters. Exactly. Very few Zaha Hadids. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I haven't done that experiment. <laughs> yeah. but. John Smith Architecture is going to be yeah. going to get a grab bag back. Yeah. He's, out, he's out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> maybe there's some actual truth to that because when I did that experiment, I just used the exact same terminology, but just changed the name of the architect. The stuff that I got for Zaha, it looked like exactly what you would think you would get. The other ones, you're like, I don't know what that is. Why is that a fish on the roof? Like, it just it didn't make any yeah. sense at all. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I think that that could be a little fun way to burn one evening of my life. <laughs> yeah. One, like, eight-hour session of sitting there one and doing eight it. eight-hour session of my evening. Yeah. You know, we were talking about the language thing earlier. I get, I don't get upset, but I get intrigued when, because if you're watching Mid-Journey and Rolling Through, right, you can see everybody else's prompts, and I'm guilty of stealing parts of people's prompts just to see how it works. Although I find it funny that I get a little aggravated when people steal my prompts, you know? Or upscale your images. Yeah, or upscale or do variations of my image. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I've been working on this version for three hours and you hop in here and pull it and go, you know. But there's some in different languages. I mean, I've seen Spanish. I've seen, I think, Japanese, maybe. I don't know. Japanese. And I'm like, oh, man, that looks cool. But I don't know what you, like, I have no idea what that prompt is. (laughs) Um, And I wish I could, like, steal it and go. You guys are so funny. All my stuff that I've made, it's on my own private. Like, nobody sees it. Yeah. But I do go to the channel to look and see what prompts people are using. So it's how I learned I can use a URL to point to a picture. Mm -hmm. Andrew, for example, when I was looking for a retirement, Andrew did some AI images. And I was like, good God, I hope that's not supposed to be me. So I'm not using that. That that guy's like Methuselah old, right? I'm, I'm not using that. You know, all I did, all I typed for that was man enjoying retirement. Those are the images I got of these like 90 year old people. Apparently that's how you have to be to retire. Yeah. And one guy had like 11, yeah, 11 fingers. His hand was like 11 <laughs> fingers. And I was like, okay, I'm not using yeah. these. So I actually uploaded a picture of myself ah. and I was like, that looks like a homeless man. Why do they make me so fat? You know, and it just, I, I hated it. I was like, I'm not using any of these pictures at all, you know, yeah. but anyway. You got to use the new one then the control net that takes the picture of you or someone else and puts you right in that same pose. I mean, it's like a perfect transformation. What is this one now? Control net. It's part of stable diffusion. 
So yeah, you can Google control net and find it, but you basically upload two images, one that's controlling the pose of whatever you want to do and the second picture, and it just transforms it into that first picture. Andrew, that would have been good when we were 18th century 18th, gentlemen. 18th century people. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. We use Photoshop is all we did. We went and found yeah, yeah. like, you know, a couple of Lords and, <laughs> and put our faces, on our faces in Photoshop. There. Yeah. <laughs> they look just as good. They look just as good. You know what? I, in some ways... <laughs> The one of you is hilarious. It's genius. <laughs> we kind of got off track, but I think it's interesting that you're talking about you think in a year or so it's going to be doing three-dimensional stuff. Some of the stuff that I'm talking about, some of my colleagues, about doing this idea of reverse engineering the project. It's kind of like what you're talking about, but literally, I personally harp so much on projects having a concept, having a big idea, like this is what should drive your project. Being able to just generate something with the text idea that you have about how your project should be. And get those images and then try to, from that point, actually reverse engineer a project to end up looking like these images right? and, and try to go backwards from, which is kind of a weird thing. But I also think of really interesting learning process. It sounds similar to kind of what you're doing as that, but starting with the finish point and work backwards to work in the actual physicality of it, the materials, the planning, the programming, all that stuff to go backwards from what my concept is. We've been talking about doing that. I just haven't had the right sort of studio to pull that off yet. I think it's interesting, though, that you're talking about the 3D model generation happening soon. And I, mean, I think you could do the same thing in that context of just they've got an idea and they could, again, iterate it to a point where that's really what I want my project to look like. But then how do I make it function and work and do the actual stuff it needs to do to be a realized project? And I think there's a, an interesting learning concept from doing it backwards. It's going to be a big mess because it's going to output a <laughs> bunch of points. <laughs> point yeah. Points. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have fun working with those because that's going to be a total mess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've done a little bit of it. I've taken a few images and I've tried to 3D model them just, you know, in Rhino. Mm -hmm. And it works really well, actually, for if you use top down aerial view so that the image is already producing a kind of flat, you know, plan yeah. view of the project. You can start extruding and modeling it. It's horrible for perspective view because I think when it produces, I'm not, I have never verified that. I think it's true which is that as it starts creating these, it might be using imagery that was taken from a 50 millimeter camera over here, rendered with a 22 millimeter wide angle there. It might be a hand drawing over here and it starts combining all those into one image. Yeah. And as you start modeling it, you're modeling in your 50 millimeter Rhino viewport, the image behind you. And then suddenly it just doesn't work. You get like a huge 20 foot gap in the middle of the building that <laughs> it won't work. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, all of a sudden the perspective doesn't make any sense. You're like, wait, yeah. wait, no, this is not right. Yeah. Total yeah. mess. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be even worse. I, I mean, there'll be a rough start when it starts being 3D. It'll, it'll look like it'll be texture mapped nicely. It'll be great. Yeah. That kind of stuff. But as a usable mesh, my guess is a few more years after that, but it, it'll happen. <laughs> you know, this is taking a few steps back, but I remember when I was in school, there was this, this is where I think this could be interesting. You would end up getting like a third or, or fourth year student who wasn't very articulate about like, they hadn't really learned how to speak for a while, but the work was amazing. Like the project is great, but you get up there to listen to them talk about it. They're like, don't really know how to articulate what they put on the wall. In contrast, we'd get graduate students that are a little bit older, and man, they could talk the greatest game ever, but the work on the wall was garbage because they just hadn't had the fundamental, they hadn't put the time in yet. That fourth-year student, he already had all this like architecture 101, form, space, mass, post-shade, you know, like positive, negative. Like they've got this foundation and they're building these great projects, but they can't talk about them. And the grad students were like the exact opposite. Now they'll be able to enter in all their amazing language and come out with these terrific projects that'll put them in a different kind of playing field than the guys that don't have the ability to figure out how to describe what it is that they're doing, which I think is going to be an interesting evolution to this process, quite honestly. Yeah. When I think back a little bit, I'm like, man, this, I wish this stuff would have been around when I was in school because I would have been able to... I could type out the stuff that I was thinking. I just couldn't physically draw it or create it. I wasn't that great of an artist. I was just like, man, I'd be killing it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, okay, that's actually really interesting because we went through this period of time to where the architecture seems to reflect our ability to document it. Mm -hmm. And so if I look at all the fantastical mid-journey architecture, they're very organic. I'm not getting a lot of boxy stuff, but when I look, if I go back 
five to 10 years and look at all the award-winning architecture that's out there, it's very boxy. It's cantilevered. It's these kind of shapes that are very geometric in their nature. And, and I kind of go, because drawing curves is hard, <laughs> you know, building a curve. <laughs> building wall, curves like, is hard. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it was before you could start to make the digital version of your construction drawings part of the building document set where you could go, okay, I want to say, I think it's the roof at SoFi. Mm -hmm. I think that might be right. One of these stadiums has like 500 unique shaped pieces of glass mm -hmm. on it. Yeah. And they're like, we could never X, Y, and Z dimension this for somebody to build it, but we can model it and we can give them our electronic files. And, you know, one of the guys that's here in Dallas actually got his fellow in the AIA for being an architect who was an attorney who actually was the guy that was responsible for making electronic documents part of the drawing set rather than just printed out paper versions of that. That's kind of a big deal. All right. So there's this, this evolution to the process. How do we create it and how do we give it to somebody to explain all those images now? They're all fantastically organic in their nature. Like literally almost every single one of them that I see. I mean, unless you put in modernism, like I do sometimes and I, I get all the right angles. Yeah. I mean, they're all messed up, but they're right angles, right? You get a lot of Barcelona pavilion if you do that. Uh. <laughs> well, Corey, I know the work, I can look at the work that you, that I, if I want to go online and look at your work, if I want to look at your yeah. Instagram feed, yeah. all of it's organic in its nature. Yeah, a lot. Of, yeah, it is. It's all curved. It's I all. I was looking at it today. Because yeah. yeah. I keep putting organic in my, my text. <laughs> <laughs> I keep putting Bruce Goff in my text. And you're amping it up. You're like S2000, right? Like, yeah. There it goes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's so funny. Yeah, it's funny because actually right now there's a very brutalist building I haven't posted that I'm working on that's all uh, concrete and, and angles. But it's still the 2000 architect in me. Like I, I just, uh, I can't get rid of the yeah 3DS Max upbringing. It's like my parent that I'm trying to extricate. Yeah, that, you know, it's an interesting question. I think there's two things that might happen. I mean... We had a symposium here recently called after Architecture After AI, and we brought in speakers, some philosophers, some artists, and we brought in some educators, academics. Jenny Sabin was one of them from Cornell, and she was talking about how really we've been through this before, the same exact destabilization and just sudden, like almost fear, but also excitement happened when Grasshopper was first introduced. It happened when computers in general were first introduced, and it happened when VR was first introduced. And it just, you know, keeps happening. So the question is, is that what we're experiencing? Just another version of that that's not maybe going to pan out into the really the mainstream like VR. Yeah, we're trying to use it more and more people are using it, but it hasn't transformed the profession. Um, computers certainly did, but I wouldn't say they necessarily transform the mainstream of what we're, the award-winning architecture is. As you mentioned, like it's buildings, rectilinear. You could have done that before the computer. Mm -hmm. Is this something that will actually transform fundamentally the way that architecture is made and what it looks like? That's one thing. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll just kind of not pan out just like the other technologies. The other thing, though, that might be happening is all of these technologies might be progressing in their own independent lanes. You know, we have AR, we have now technology where you can put on a hollow lens and skill up labor immediately. You know, they can see the project in front of them that they're supposed to build and you don't need skills because it says hit the nail here, screw the screw there. That's a future possibility that might totally transform construction. You have this, which might transform the design process. Will all these things reach like a pyramid, like the top of a pyramid where they finally connect to each other and actually totally transform the discipline? I think that's the big question. Are they headed in the same direction or are they going to run parallel and just continue in their own cycles. One of the things I've been talking about with some of my colleagues in that same nature is that there's a this apprehension, right, of how it's going to take away our jobs. But on the flip side of that, it's this ability that it might actually free us up to go back to just doing the design things and not having to worry about creating construction drawings or even creating models because that stuff can be artificially generated. Mm -hmm. It's smart enough to do that if once we have the data sets of that type of work, that now like the majority of what we do is schematic design things. Mm -hmm. That's where we spend all our time as architects. And that's what we get to do. And that's what we really like about architecture anyway. Mm -hmm. But that this may be able to free that up. So I think that's an interesting conversation to think about using AI to do the mundane stuff, kind of like we do already to like robots to build cars or vacuum our floors or whatever it is, being able to do that stuff to free us back to really focusing on design and like you were mentioning earlier, if we can do something and iterate 
well, change this solar thing or change this orientation or change the shading. Or, and it's a much faster process that that allows us to really iterate a whole lot more to get more refined projects and more performance-based, responsive, all those kinds of things because we're not bogged down in, okay, make the model, make the construction documents, that kind of work that maybe AI will be able to do for us as long as it's not pulling it from the internet. We're getting all the bad data, but, you know, but it's about creating those data sets for that kind of stuff. Okay, so let me just throw this in. We had a meeting in our office over the Christmas break, and I was out, so I, I didn't sit on it. Having lunch with a guy in my office, and he goes, hey, were you in that meeting December when blah, blah, blah? And I was like, wait, what? I go, we're literally going to be talking about this today. So we had a group from Tel Aviv come into the office, and I don't want to give them a plug. Not because I'm just mean guy, but I mean, it's, I wasn't in the meeting, and I don't know what they're doing is actually worth it. But what they pitched to us was their platform actually, we upload our Revit sets, the families, the gr- everything. We, so you choose a platform like multifamily. You upload your Revit sets for these projects, and we did three. We, we know we had them sign the waiver. And we uploaded complete packages on the Revit files for these three projects. They're able to take that information, the computer takes those data sets, learns how, like, how you do your drawings, and it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So if your families are junk, you're going to get junk families. Like they don't actually sure. optimize anything that you've done, but they'll look at and go, these are the drawings you create. Here's your drawing sheets. Here's the draw. Like, you know that if you're going to have a stair there, boom, here's the stair and here's your details for it. Like it will do the construction drawings for you Yeah. based on the data sets you upset. Now, we only uploaded three. So that's like the amount of information that it can glean from that was somewhat compartmentalized into like big bites as opposed to like here's 300 projects that we put in. Yeah. So I thought that's a fairly profound consideration that there's somebody already out there saying we can do this. You do this, you hit a button, you're going to get your drawing sets done instantly. The thing that's funny, and I might send it to you guys just to get a chuckle out of it. I'm not going to actually push it out there for everyone else's consumption on the website for this there's a video and it is literally the funniest video i've ever seen because it's a client and he calls his architect and he's like hello architect and she's like hi she's like i need to have this done in two weeks she's like and she goes check your email and he's like are these the construction drawings she's like tell the contractor permit set drawings are coordinated and ready to go and i was like what am i watching <laughs> I mean, that's it's, wild now i watched the video not to be entertained by how this was because maybe at some point this is actual reality because this is what they're promoting that they're able and have the capacity to do but the reduction nobody's looking at this stuff like nobody's checking it mm. you don't know where it's located and during the video he goes uh could you do it more like the project we did together that was on Green Street or whatever. And she's like, sure can, you know, <laughs> updated. S2000. Yes. Change the parameters. He goes, I thought I was asking for a lot when I wanted drawings in two weeks. Yeah. And I'm like, two <laughs> weeks? Like what? It's scary. It's scary, actually. And that's my concern with sort of how this process works. For certain, well, I, I know, at least I think we're old enough to remember when stuff was done by hand, but when computers started that automatically started crunching our time period to get work done because everybody goes, oh, it's just a few computer strokes and you can change the whole product. You know, like I feel like once the AI starts taking over that portion as well, it's going to be all of our time frames are going to start even crunching even more. People will be like, oh, we're going to do a new building. You need the permit set in two months and it's 900,000 square feet because of you're going to automate all this. It's all automated. All you have to do is come up with an idea. I'm worried that that's what's going to happen is it's going to truncate our professional timelines yet again and make things have to go even faster. Yeah, I, I like what you said earlier, how I try to remain optimistic about it because, I don't know, it's going to happen. And so <laughs> I yeah. think it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Put it one way or another. And like I mentioned at the very beginning, it, it can't be a human. It's not going to think like a human. So it's never going to replace a human in the way that we think. Yeah. It's going to do a lot of things better than us. It will do a lot of things worse than us because it's just, it's not us. It's And we're not it. I think you have to think about it optimistically. What can it do for us that, brings us back to the parts of architecture that we love. So we're not just drawing details that we don't need to waste time drawing that something else could draw them. I think things like that being replaced would be really good. Maybe we could strike a better work-life balance in our field that we, we 
don't have. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, yeah, in general, it's like, it's funny. I, I just cannot understand, you know, there's a lot of criticism about these text-to-image platforms from architects that I love, friends of mine. And I just don't get it because for me, I just love architecture so much. That's why I'm addicted to these platforms. I'm producing these buildings. I'm like, that's a cool building. Five hours later, that's a cool building. Five hours. I mean, just like an absorbing, Mm -hmm. amazing catalogs of architecture constantly. And I don't care that I, I mean, I don't need to have ownership over those. I think some people really, I don't even put that I co-created with AI. They like leave that off as if they design the thing. And it's like, (laughs) you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't care if you did or did not. Is it a nice project and interesting having some impact on on me? But yeah, I don't know. I think I, I try to remain optimistic about what it's producing, but also where it can go. And hopefully it, it's something that makes our lives more, sorry, side note, but you know, we've all lived through this like interesting transition from the way architecture was structured, the way the, the firms are structured, the way academia was structured, and it really got absorbed in technology when computers came around. And, and that really changed a lot of how we approach things. And you started to see in the discipline, a, a scattering of people into different specializations. So like even within a place like SOM or a big, big architecture firm, you'd start having pockets of digital technologists, pockets of renderers. And these were all architects. They were trained architects, but you'd categorize them into these little camps because they had specialization within that camp. I think that that is starting to be rejected. You know, you start seeing students totally reject photoreal rendering in favor of a much more basic rendering style. I think because they're like, look, we don't want to go there. We don't want to become technologists. We we don't want to go down this path that leads in this one particular outcome. We actually want to remain generalists where we can practice and be part of the entire process. I think that's a maybe very positive thing that the technology as it becomes more accessible, you don't need to become an expert at it. You can utilize it no matter where you are in the firm, where you are in the design process. And then hopefully that allows a better communication between all the people within that process. I think you're onto something there. I also think kind of what you started with about this idea that sitting there and coming up with a new architecture idea every five hours and doing these iterations. I love it too. And I've got some colleagues that are a little bit uh, skeptical and a couple of them are maybe lean more towards the artist side, so they worry about intellectual property of it all. But for me, it's just like, oh, if I can type out something and see what happens to kind of be that creative outlet, but it's a lot of architecture focus, which really hasn't been possible before for me to just, I, there was so much work involved if I wanted to do some crazy tree architecture. That was a lot of work. Or I wasn't a skilled enough artist to make that come to life where now I can do it. And I, like you said, I can iterate for five hours to hone it. Mm-hmm. It becomes a creative process in and of itself, which I think is really interesting to me about it. It's just not quite as obtrusive as the opponents make it out to be. It's totally inspirational and like works on a different level, but it's still a creative process for all of it. It's still a process. It's not like the things that I share. It took me one time to type it in and I'm done. Yeah. Especially as you start using multiple AI softwares, like the outpainting and and DALI, the image generation mm. and mid-journey, then you start stitching together things. and. And all of this is original. No one can produce exactly what you're producing. It's going to be original in those terms. You know, it might be similar, but it's <laughs> yeah. it's not exactly the same. I mean, I think that's pretty exciting too, that these things are exploding, these different tools. And once you start using these tools in concert with each other, you're just finding new territory that we've never experienced before. When I talked about the outpainting in the 19 kind of 80s, look, I, I took one image and then I made it really big and I asked the AI like, all right, what's just outside that frame? And it was pretty similar to what the image was. And then I went really far away. I mean, I like went four times further than the image, you know, out into deep state over there. Yeah. And that's where it got really weird. <laughs> it was like cities and pavilions and rivers all made out of fluorescent <laughs> pinks and, you know, super weird. Yeah. And that's not an area that you would go to. Yeah. I don't care what your design background is, you know, it's just not going to happen. And and it only happens because of that 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 tool. Yeah. How many prescriptions you have at one time? You're not going to get to the Neon River. Okay. Well, we should really head towards the final section of today's call, which is really everyone's just been fighting our way through our AI conversation to get to this. But I want there to be a takeaway at the end of it. And for me, it's pretty simple. I feel like AI is here. And it really has to do with what we're going to be doing with it as a tool. How are we going to use it 
to assist and aid and develop and evolve what it is we're doing. And I tell people, just start playing with it. You don't have to know what you're doing. Just give it a shot. Spend an afternoon. See what you can figure out. See what's fun. Corey, do you have similar words of wisdom to? <laughs> yeah, I think I would say what I learned with the chat GPT was the more you put in, the more you get out of it. And I feel bad for people that use things like chat GPT just to, to get from point A to point B. I'm an educator and I'm a learner. And the reason I'm still teaching now is I'm learning constantly. I'm still watching tutorials. And that's the part of the process I really love. And so with things like text to image, all these kind of AIs, I think you just have to go in with that mentality. The more you put in, the more you'll get out of it. And it's a learning process and it's reflection and a conversation back to you with the computer that's not a one-sided, one-way street. Yeah. All right, Andy, what are your closing words of wisdom? I think it's just, don't be scared of it. Don't feel like it's the end of your architectural career or that it's something to fight against. I think, and this has been my attitude about everything, like it was with BIM too, the sooner you adopt it, the more you can adapt yourself to using it in the ways that you want. If you do that sooner, as opposed to later, when there are more structured ways of it being used and you have to follow suit, the earlier you embrace it, the more actually freedom and flexibility you have with it, quite honestly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that was a great conversation, but let's get to the important part. <laughs> so today, Corey's agreed to actually do the what's the rank that we're tackling today. And we're going to make it pretty easy on him. We're going to go back to a food one. I told you that before the show, we ranked the best letters of the alphabet. Uh, which, you know, there were some hot sports opinions on how that actually happens. My wife had wildly different opinions about how you, what criteria you use. Andrew and I both said, these are the funnest letters to draw. My wife's like, that's the worst way to choose the best letters. This one has the most value in the human language. And I was like, okay, clearly <laughs> math major, you yeah. to architect. Right? There's a difference here. I did go yeah. look though. I did go look. I'll tell you, just, we can cut this out. I went and looked like the most frequently used letters. And there was a, like a, a point system or something. And your letters beat me by one point. And it's really because I chose Z. Z was the last one. Who chose G? Nobody chose G. I would have chose G. G would have been in there for sure. You got the curves. You got the straights. You got the angles. We said G was one of the worst letters, actually. <laughs> oh, I did a whole. Okay, so the text image, I did a whole thing on Gs. Oh, right. nice. I have Gs. I have combination of Gs. They're pretty good. Oh, look, I've already <laughs> dived into. The, I've done like six renders on the letter L as a building already. So. <laughs> you got to try G. All right. And look, I'll broaden my search terms. So we're going to do a food ranking this week because those are pretty easy and everyone can play along. And so what we're going to rank in today's show are the best three types of cookies. And since you're our guest, Corey, you have to go first so we can make fun of you. That's kind of how that works. <laughs> and you got to understand, you give us number three, then number two, and we end with the best cookie. Okay. Don't tell us the first cookie first or that'll mess it up. All right. Yeah. And so we kind of round robin it. You'll go, then we go, then we'll do it that way. So. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. My first cookie has to be a Girl Scout cookie. It's between the peanut one and the Thin Mint, but I have to give it to the Thin Mint. Mm. And it has to be frozen. Frozen Thin Mint. I'm on board. Well, that's the only way to eat those. If they're not frozen Thin Mints, they're not really worth it. For sure. No, no. You know, I debated, I will tell you, I ate an entire sleeve of frozen Thin Mints yesterday. Nice. <laughs> nice. Now is the season. Tis, Tis the, the season, season for Thin Mint. Yeah, for sure. I know. Pull them out. Yeah. So that's a good one. That is a good one. That is a good one. You're starting off strong, Corey. All right. Maybe we won't be making fun of you like we were hoping. <laughs> no, I'm just going to make fun of me like always. Andrew? So my number three is a, a white macadamia nut chocolate chip cookie. Macadamia nuts in it. Okay. All right. That's, again, not mm -hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. Not ridiculous. You did say whatever, which wasn't a firm type. Well, I don't know what you call it. To me, they're white macadamia nut cookies, but. I know what you're talking. It's like a white chocolate chip with macadamia nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. And, you know, most people will concede that the macadamia is the king of nuts, right? That's in terms of cost, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Before I tell you the correct answer for number three, <laughs> I'm a little surprised that we didn't make the distinction to homemade versus store-bought. Okay. I thought for sure somebody was going to bring that up. No. Okay. So I don't feel so bad with my answers because you know what? So Andrew makes fun of me a lot. I have a very simple palate. 
Like I'm an adventurous eater, but I tend to, I don't like cookies. I'm going to go on the record. Cookies are not my thing. I don't ever eat other than the sleeve of frozen cookies. <laughs> the sleeve I ate yesterday, they're not my thing. <laughs> yeah, that's not normal. All right, it's not normal. So number three for me is the flavor-packed Nilla wafer. Okay. I don't know what it is. I don't like banana pudding, so I'm not motivated by those based on their incorporation in other dishes. But but you like cardboard. <laughs> I like eating cardboard. Yeah, apparently. Those things are terrible. Yeah, it only works in a pudding, to be honest. Yeah, they're like the blandest thing ever. I knew for sure y'all were going to come at me for that choice, it's, but I'm okay with it. Mm. Sounds bad. It's like that joke, the fortune cookie, and the piece of paper should have the recipe for a good tasting <laughs> cookie in it. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully nobody chose fortune cookies because that's yeah, worse. Yeah, Nilla wafers. I know. Well, you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> get it. All right, Corey, what's what's your number two? Number two, I'll go with a, a very specific chocolate chip cookie. It's got to be very thin with an outer crusty edge, and the middle has to be chewy and a few big salt flakes. Okay, it's very precise because otherwise, the chocolate chip cookie is my least favorite cookie. Ah, yes. I agree to that point. If you give me a Chips Ahoy, it's gar- oh, garbage. Garbage. Uh, yeah. The worst. If you give me this particular one, it's going to be right up there. All right. I support that. Corey's two for two so far. I mean. So that's like a homemade-ish typically or? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. Yeah. yeah. A little Malden salt on the top of it. I gotcha. A little yeah. at the end there. All right. We might have to have you back, not as a guest <laughs> on the show, but just as a guest ranker, yeah. right? Because so far I'm on board with these answers. Bring me on for salsas. I have a lot of opinions. Oh, uh-oh. All right. That's not a bad one. Okay. So for me, I'm going mass produced version here, and it's an Oreo. Okay. Okay. That's my second cookie. Oreos are pretty solid for me. Not bad. I like them by themselves. They're good in ice cream. They're good with milk. All around. I mean, as long as they're fresh. A stale Oreo is the worst thing ever. Like, I've had some that sit around the house for a while, and they're like a little chewy. Or somebody gives me a package, and it's really chewy, and they also have to be Oreo. The generic stuff is garbage. Yeah, yeah. Brand specific Oreo. I didn't know that they, you could even, I've never even heard of a stale Oreo. Like they're round long enough to ever get, that seems ridiculous. Well, you know. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I agree with you on that one. But the thing about the Oreo is if you ate the filling, it would be good. If you just ate the outer parts, it would be bad. Just the cookie part. Yeah, no, no. Nobody eats just the outer part of an Oreo. You know what? The same guy that I talked to today that told me about the group doing the Revit, we talked about Oreo cookies, and he's like, I don't want to eat the Crisco. So he breaks them open, scrapes the white yeah, out, and weird. just eats the outer part. <laughs> that's strange. He probably likes Nilla wafers, too, though. So what does that guy know? <laughs> he's never getting on the show. Okay. <laughs> so my number two cookie, I actually almost went Thin Mint. But I decided to go Samoa's. Mm. Nah. Okay. That's a good cookie. You know what? I'm a little bitter that they got smaller. Yeah. But some reason, I really like the Samoa, the Girl Scout cookie. Mm. I'm not a coconut guy. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, me too. With you, Andrew. Yeah. But if I was, it would be the Samoa. Yeah, right. Okay. So moving on. All right, Corey, you're number one. Drum roll, number one. All right. My number one personal favorite is my mom's Christmas cookie. It's a sugar cookie. It has a a vanilla frosting that's dyed some color, like red or blue. And then it has red hots and those little metal beads on it. BBs, those little metal BBs. (laughs) Which I think are probably (laughs) cancer-causing. But they are delicious. And me and my sister have a fight because she lives in New Mexico. My sister's in San Diego. My mom sends them out, and we literally count them to make sure. You get the even amount. That's so bad. A major problem. All right, Corey, we're going to have to stay in touch so that your Instagram feed or something, you're going to have to post a picture of that cookie come the holidays. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, my mom will be happy to learn she has to bake a bunch more cookies. <laughs> yeah. And and that she took top spot, though. So yeah, that's, uh, I know. Yeah, she did. That means right. you should get extra cookies whole... this year. That's what that means, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all this is about. I just need extra cookies. Just, hey, mom, listen to this episode. I talk about the cookies. You got to send me more. That's right. <laughs> I know. I need 10 more than my that's sister. Right. <laughs> you know, that's the smart play here, really. Okay. All right, Andrew, what's your number one? So my number one is a chocolate chip cookie. With salt. I mean, very much like Corey's number two, that's sort of mine. I like soft chocolate chip cookies. And I typically only like them when they're hot. And I also want salt on them. Not just a little bit. I kind of do. I may overdo the salt, but not a lot. But I put some coarse salt on top of my cookies. So chocolate chip cookie with salt. It's, it's hard to beat. I think it's just hard to beat. 
I think if you just took a generic poll of mouth breathers sure. out there, they would all say that chocolate chip cookie is their favorite cookie. Sure. But I'm with you. Like chips, actually, no store-bought of any kind. Agreed. My favorite are like homemade, not even cold store-bought cook, even though I have those. But like butter the flour, like really good ones are when those edges fly like that and they're really buttery. Man, those are the best. Yeah. Those are the best. Hands down. Hands down. I'm going to add your addition. I'm adding your addition of hot to my, <laughs> my cookie too. Oh my God. I, I think that's a key. So you know what you two guys have just managed to do? Basically, you've described a cookie that is like saying, I'm going to choose this cookie, but it has to be a good version of that cookie, which that's stupid. <laughs> like nobody wants the, oh, I was going to choose the bad version of that cookie. Yeah. Okay. So basically you're saying as long as it's a good. I mean, some people may like Chips Ahoy or those grandma's yeah. ones or whatever in the plastic cellophane bags or the, yeah, I, no, I don't like any of those. Tates. I don't like that stuff. I don't like hard cookie. I don't want a hard chocolate chip. No crumbly no, cookies. No, no. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. And too big. I don't like them when they're too big. They need to be just the right size. Yeah. Like those iced cake cookies, garbage. Those are garbage. Oh yeah. yeah. Right in, right in the trash. All right, this should not come as a huge shock to anybody who actually knows me, but I put Oreo as my number one. Ah, all right. Yeah, good yeah. call. Good call. It's the one cookie mm. that, like, when we go on vacation, we're like, mm, you know, something you just want to grab every now and then, Oreo seems to be the go-to. Yeah. We don't put them in the house because we will eat them. I can't think of another cookie that I would just, like, walk into the kitchen and go eat if it was sitting out. So were you actually describing yourself? You removed the middle? No, no. <laughs> yeah. He's like, my friend, this guy at work. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my friend removes the Crisco middle. No, you know what? Look, I'll call him out. It was Lane Acre. Oh, uh, was knows it? Him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he thinks yeah, no. the Crisco's gross. And I was like, I don't separate them. I don't mind dunking them, but yeah. that's not a trigger for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good multi-purpose all-around cookie. It's good in yogurt. It's good in ice cream. It's yeah. good in my stomach, right? I like it. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. There's our ranking of the cookies. I have no doubt that I lost that one and I'm okay <laughs> with it. I'm okay with losing that one. <laughs> so, okay. I think we've reached the point where I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 122, Architecture and AI. Special thanks to our guest, Corey Beeg, for bringing his knowledge and interest to the conversation. Corey, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really good talking to you. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms. So hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish a sensational new episode. And while you're there, please take a few moments to leave us a five-star enter style descriptor Bruce Goff rating here. To give you more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this super cool episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.